Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Good evening, and welcome to Global Minnesota's first digital global conversation, a look at Italy today with professor of journalism and author Alexander Stilla. I'm Tim Odegaard, program director at Global Minnesota. Uh, I'm pleased now to introduce our speaker for this evening's program, Alexander Stilla, Sao Paulo Professor of International Journalism at Columbia University. Uh, professor Stilla graduated with a BA from uh, Yale University, earned a Master of Science at Columbia. Uh, his journalistic career includes contributions to the New York Times, La Repubblica, the New Yorker Magazine, the New York Review of Books, <clears throat> the Atlantic Monthly, New Republic, Correspondent, U.S. News and World Report, the Boston Globe, and the Toronto Globe and Mail. Um, he's also a prolific and celebrated author of books on Italy, uh, and his awards include the Los Angeles Times Book Award for Best Work of History, the Premio Acqui, San Francisco Chronicle Critics' Choice Award, and the Elisa Patterson Foundation Award for Journalism. Um, I will now turn the screen over to our uh, distinguished speaker, uh, Professor Alexander Stilla. Thank you, Professor Stilla. Hi. Uh, thanks, Tim, for that kind introduction, and thank all of you for participating. I realize that uh, I'm competing with Hulu and Netflix, but hopefully you will have gone through um, enough of your uh, wish list to um, take time for this talk. Um, normally, uh, when one talks about Italy, it's almost necessary to explain why Italy, but in the middle of this um, tragic pandemic, which has um, rocketed around the world, it's um, a little less necessary to do that since, um, as we all know, um, the pandemic moved rapidly from China. Italy then became the hotspot um, only to be replaced by uh, the US as um, the um, locus of the epidemic now. So we look at Italy um, for lessons to what might be ahead um, in a few weeks for us. Um, the I just sort of put on the screen uh, some of the images from Italy in these days. That's the Duomo of Milan, which has been uh, at the epicenter um, of the epidemic. Um, and there's uh, St. Mark's Square, since none of us are going to be able to travel uh, to Italy in the next month or two, I thought I'd give you a little um, taste of what we're all missing. Uh, I actually was supposed to be in Italy in the middle of March, and needless to say, didn't make that trip. Um, there's a Colosseum with uh, no foot traffic, the Trebi Fountain, the capital of Rome, and uh, St. Peter's um, Square, that's Via della Conciliazione. Um, so I think it's been clear for all of us um, in the last two months as we've tried to understand the, uh, the meaning of the coronavirus uh, crisis is it's kind of um, revealed the fault lines, weaknesses, and strengths in some cases of the different societies that it's um, hit. And in Italy, the virus has a particular geography. Um, and um, you can see here from um, this slide, uh, the big red um, uh, circle around uh, Milan and Lombardy. Um, and you see that uh, in the numbers over here, that Lombardy um, uh, accounts for uh, practically half of the cases in Italy and three times as large as any other. Um, you might say, well, why Lombardy? Um, and uh, the reasons are actually ironically part of Lombardy's good fortune. This is a map of um, uh, the distribution of, of wealth in Italy. Um, Lombardy is um, an exceptionally prosperous, industrious region. It is um, arguably, along with uh, regions surrounding it, the kind of economic motor of the country. And um, as a result, of course, it's very connected to the rest of the world by business and commerce. And the towns that were first, uh, the first sort of hotspots of the, of the pandemic 
um, occurred in these towns north of Milan that are um, very important in the area of textile and um, um, uh, clothing manufacturer uh, companies that regularly do business with China and therefore we're going to be among the first places to um, get the um, uh, the COVID-19 um, virus. Uh, this is a little uh, graphic of the distribution of foreign direct investment in Italy and you see that the south of Italy toward the bottom um, receives almost no foreign direct investment. The north and the center of the country um, overwhelmingly the uh, lion's share. So that partly explains um, the map we saw with um, the geographic distribution. Another thing that this crisis has made sort of tragically um, um, evident is um, the high mortality rate uh, Italy has had, uh, along with Belgium, the, um, um, the sad distinction of the, one of the highest mortality rates in the world. Um, and um, the reason for that is, in a sense, simple. Um, uh, Italy is um, one of the oldest countries, you could say, that in some ways it's um, um, the price of success. Uh, Italians live a long time, um, and they've been producing um, uh, small numbers of children, and as a result, uh, the population is aging rapidly. And as you can see in this graphic here, um, over 22% of the population is over 64, and well over half of the population, 59%, is uh, over 40. So um, that makes, uh, particularly in the over 64 uh, category, people vulnerable to um, the more severe consequences of the, uh, of the pandemic. Um, another factor in this, and one that becomes sort of important to the political story that I um, plan on telling is uh, Lombardy is also the region with the highest percentage of immigrants. Um, why that's important, uh, I'll get into a little bit later. But obviously, um, uh, one of the challenges in trying to get control of a virus like this is um, um, knowing who has it. And if you have large numbers of undocumented people, that becomes uh, difficult and problematic. And the politics of that are, are sort of important in terms of uh, the story that I'll be um, telling. You can see as well that this um, division between North and South and the importance of Lombardy and the area um, in the North has real political consequences. Um, the part of the um, map I'm showing you that's blue represents the, the recent um, very considerable um, gains of a party called the Lega, the Northern, originally it was the Northern League, it's now simply the League, um, which is a, become, began as an autonomous party of regional um, uh, autonomy for the North of Italy, but has become increasingly a nationalist party. And they won very big, they've always done very well in the North of Italy and uh, have expanded their uh, popularity in other parts of the country. Uh, the red sections in the middle are sort of known as Italy's Red Belt, which has traditionally been a left-wing region, and the yellow part in the south is um, dominated politically by um, a movement called the Five Star Movement, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so um, Italy has been doing, after an initial um, slow response to the crisis, managed to do uh, relatively well in flattening the curve. You can see um, the, uh, the top red line are the number of total cases, and uh, which has been sort of gradually going down. The black line at the bottom is the, <coughs> the number of deaths, which has been essentially flattened and is beginning to go down. Um, so, um, and there you can see it in relation to um, the US. Um, Italy, in order to do this, has taken even more stringent measures than, um, uh, than have been taken in the US. 
uh, friends of mine I've been in communication with haven't left their house in some case for a couple of weeks. Um, you can be given a ticket if you walk more than a couple hundred yards from your house. Um, parks are closed. So a lot of things um, we think we have it bad um, in terms of sheltering in place, but they've done a very, very stringent job. And hence you can see um, some amusing scenes like this wild boar that is uh, happy to realize that he now has the run of whatever town this picture was taken in. Um, the political beneficiary um, of this relatively successful, and I should say relatively, um, is a man named Giuseppe Conte, Conte who um, uh, was prime minister, is prime, was prime minister before this happened, uh, as prime minister during this crisis. And um, it's interesting because um, Italy, Italians in general don't love their political leaders. That's not unique to Italy, but the Italians are particularly um, that way. Um, and it's interesting to see, I looked up the, uh, the polling numbers for the different recent governments, and these are the approval ratings of the people who've been governing Italy over the last um, four or five years. And um, they've mostly been in the underwater category of approval ratings under 50. Uh, then Conte enjoyed a brief popularity when he took over with the center-right government going up to 62. Then by the, you know, before this crisis was down to 40. And then uh, you see him going all the way up to 71, which for Italy is exceptionally high. So that there has been a kind of um, rallying around the flag, a surprising degree of discipline and respect for the sheltering in place rules that the government has imposed. And so far, this has sort of had the effect of, in effect, suspending the normal dynamic of political life. Um, interestingly, now that the, the most sort of drastic moment of crisis seems to be abating, and Italy is begin, beginning to debate uh, reopening in some way. They're, they've now planned what's called a phase two, which would involve the reopening of some non-essential businesses on May 4th. The usual uh, political dynamics um, of Italy are now reasserting themselves. So it'll be very interesting to see um, how that plays out. Um, to understand how that might play out and what might be ahead it's necessary to um, go back a little bit. Um, Italy, like many countries around the world, including our own, uh, but maybe for a slightly longer time, have been dealing with a kind of growing populism, a growing discontent with politics as usual, um, discontent with um, the central government in Rome. And the first big manifestation of this um, political change began in Northern Italy, precisely in the Lombardy region that we were talking about earlier, with a party that initially seemed to be kind of uh, a joke called the uh, Lega Lombarda, which was its first name, founded by this gentleman in the picture here, Umberto Bossi, um, who um, was um, pushing for regional autonomy and eventually secession for the northern regions of, of Italy on the grounds that these regions were, uh, didn't receive their fair share of uh, government taxes and services, that they were supporting um, the less prosperous regions in particularly the south. I had a very sort of strong anti-southern um, uh, rhetoric to it, an anti-Rome rhetoric to it. Um, it had a kind of initially, it seemed like a sort of folkloric, not terribly serious movement. Um, you'll see the, the gentleman in the center there with the green hat uh, has on a, a shirt that says Padania. Uh, Padania is a sort of uh, imaginary region that Bossi invented, which would represent the regions that are um, fed by the river Po. And so Padania is, um, um, is derived from the, the adjective for uh, Po, which is Padano in, uh, in Italian. Um, he brought a kind of um, sort of FU populism to Italian politics, as you can see. Um, 
uh, from his gesture here, which is um, sort of typical of his, he had kind of a, a rabble rouser, um, um, you know, uh, stirring up the crowd kind of um, approach to politics, which worked well, but it, um, it didn't travel very well outside of the regions of Northern Italy because it was mainly addressed to uh, the discontents of people in the North and directed against, um, so this says, uh, first the North, that was their, you know, part of their initial um, appeal. Um, and it was directed against uh, Rome. So here's one of their most famous uh, posters, um, which I've translated as Rome, the big thief, the, uh, the league never forgets. And you see here, um, the symbol is um, a knight, which represents, um, uh, something called the, uh, the refers to a medieval uh, alliance of northern cities that existed in um, the uh, 13th century. Um, but you see some of the themes are ones that are actually sort of familiar to uh, our world today. This, this one says uh, no to the invasion of Chinese uh, products, so anti-international uh, trade, um, no more money to Rome, um, pushing for um, the northern regions to be able to tax themselves and keep the money rather than sending it to Rome. Uh, this is an interesting one um, that anticipates um, the sort of anti-immigrant feeling um, and um, with this picture of, a, of an Indian chief um, in the U.S. and says they weren't able to stop immigration and now they live on reservations. Think about it. Um, here again, another uh, Lega slogan, less taxes to Rome, more money from um, the families of the North. Um, their celebrations had a kind of folkloric element in which they were um, reimagining what they thought Celtic rituals might be in these um, uh, events that they would hold. Um, in some ways, it's easy to laugh at this, but if you think about something like the Tea Party, uh, demonstrations where they were dressing up in um, 18th century garb. In a way, it's similar. Their grievances uh, are very much contemporary, but they were adopting a kind of choreography that harked back to uh, another era. Um, finally, um, this movement sort of um, ran out of gas because the idea of secession was really a losing proposition. It had no appeal beyond the regions of Northern Italy and even a limited appeal in Northern Italy. So the movement ended up being sort of taken over by this man who brought them into his government. This is Silvio Berlusconi um, with his uh, million dollar smile, make that billion dollar smile. Um, and um, um, as you see, he sort of projected a different kind of populism in which he quite self-consciously styled himself after both Ross Perot, another businessman entering into politics, but also very much after Ronald Reagan. He had a kind of morning in Italy um, uh, uh, charisma that uh, worked very well. He uh, had earned his money during a college singing on cruise ships and brought a kind of feel for um, media and entertainment. Um, he um, made his money um, initially in real estate um, and then uh, became the largest um, owner of private television in Italy, uh, bought himself a magnificent aristocratic villa um, and began to project a different kind of populism, which in some ways, here you see him, uh, he bought the Milan soccer team, Milan, and uh, won a series of championships with it, which was a big part of his um, uh, growing national popularity. And um, in many ways, um, he put together a formula which um, should be quite familiar to Americans who watched uh, the rise of Donald Trump. He combined um, real estate fortune, a large um, a feel for media, um, a fluency with the use of television, um, uh, a kind of macho appeal, uh, bragging about his relationships with women, 
uh, problems with hair, which I indicate here. Um, a, a sort of paradoxical ability to be a billionaire who appeals across class lines and has a kind of working class um, appeal, um, a curious weakness for Vladimir Putin, which seems to be common. And um, um, a mix of anger and calm. Um, uh, he then ended up um, being sort of felled by a series of personal scandals. Uh, you all may recall the Bunga Bunga scandal. This is uh, the, the woman who set off that scandal, who was an underage uh, woman who attended these um, parties. This is a woman he placed in a government who was one of the organizers of the party. Um, but the bigger problem, and I think the real reason why Berlusconi's version of populism uh, failed was that during the uh, nearly 20 years where he was um, the most powerful person um, in government and in politics was that Italy continued to flatline economically. Um, I think one of the most significant um, things to know and understand about Italy is that in the early 90s, Berlusconi entered politics in 1993, Italy was um, uh, equal to, if not slightly above, uh, the United Kingdom in terms of its G, uh, GDP. Uh, it's now more than 20% less than um, Great Britain. And so that is the result of, um, um, you know, steady erosion. Here are the different countries of Europe um, compared in terms of uh, GDP. And uh, Italy is right down there with Greece. Um, um, and so that, I think, really spelled Berlusconi's doom. I think they would have put up with his um, personal shenanigans had he brought the prosperity that he promised. Um, this then um, uh, state, uh, paved the way for uh, a kind of intermediary figure, uh, Matteo Renzi, who um, <clears throat> staged a kind of coup of the, the main center-left party, which had also governed in alternation with Berlusconi um, during the um, 90s and, and 2000s. Um, the, um, uh, this phrase that he has at the back, uh, he sort of came in as the sort of demolition man. Gotamare means to send something to the um, uh, junk heap. And so Renzi promised to uh, send the old political class to the junk heap um, and uh, was only partially successful in that. Unfortunately, it was very difficult for him to get um, reforms that he wanted through um, parliament. Uh, you see his sort of appeal to a younger generation. Renzi was one of the youngest um, people ever to be prime minister of Italy. Um, um, and uh, also cultivating a kind of uh, celebrity appeal, people were very enthusiastic about the promises of reform that, uh, that Renzi offered. Um, and he brought um, his party up to 41% in European elections in 2014, which in Italy's proportional system is an extraordinarily high share. Unfortunately, um, the economic growth that he promised uh, didn't quite materialize. There was a little bit of improvement, but Italy was still, even in a good year, um, uh, <clears throat> moving at about uh, you know one percent annual growth um, after um, many years of stagnation. Uh, output per worker in Italy has sort of continued to go down, and. Um, so that Renzi understood that Italy needed deep structural reform, but wasn't able to um, create the political consensus necessary to uh, make that happen. Um, this kind of increasing stagnation <clears throat> um, and a sense of frustration with politics as usual paved the way for populism 4.0, a man named Beppe Grillo, who is a comedian by profession, um, who always had a sort of um, political bite to his satire <clears throat> and managed to translate um, his satire into a political movement, which was quite extraordinary. 
one of the things that's interesting, that's uh, Grillo at one of his um, <clears throat> uh, performances, uh, he would, uh, he, was a, he was actually banned from Italian TV at one point for making fun of the Socialist Party, which was then in the government. And then he ended up building up this extraordinary career where he would fill these uh, large auditoria with people. And eventually, um, uh, because his, um, his performances were always very political, um, this man here to the right with the glasses saw who was a, a web guru, um, realized that, um, that Grillo's performances could easily translate with, um, into a political movement. And, um, um, and this guy, uh, John Roberto Casaleño, created a website for Beppe Grillo, which turned into <clears throat> um, one of the most popular blogs in the world. And for a blog in Italian to be one of the most popular um, websites in the world is quite extraordinary. And they managed in a remarkably short time to turn this into um, uh, a major political movement. What is sort of interesting, if you look at the different iterations of populism in Italy, um, Berlusconi was a master of television and used television and money to create a political movement almost out of nothing. And Grillo represents um, uh, populism in the early 2000s of using a website and interactive technology and, and crowdsourcing um, to develop a political movement in the 2000s. This then becomes um, a very powerful uh, channel for public anger, which is growing in this period of stagnation. You see him um, before a, a crowd. One of his um, most famous um, political acts, as he's beginning to form his political movement, he decides that he's going to organize a, um, a day throughout Italy called uh, the day for Vaffanculo, and I've translated that to the left, uh, which means what you think it does. Um, and he managed to get three million people to gather in squares all around Italy in order to yell Vaffanculo to the political class of Italy all at the same time. <clears throat> and that kind of you know, uh, organizing through the web and uh, combining um, spectacle with, and entertainment with politics ended up um, being remarkably successful um, in the, we're now in the 2010s. Uh, there's him doing his Vafa gesture. Um, and um, something that started to become a factor in um, Italian politics, particularly around 2015, 2016, was the uh, rapid increase of illegal immigration. Here you see boatloads of people uh, in very precarious um, vessels heading toward Italian shores. <clears throat> and you see um, the rather extraordinary climb of, um, um, of people uh, arriving illegally in Italy by boat uh, the height of it is in 2016, which you see at the top of that, where 160 people arrive in one year. Uh, here you see the month-by-month the -month totals. One of the things that I think is very uh, symbolically important in understanding um, the rise of, um, uh, here I'm going to go, this is uh, Salvini, um, who starts to uh, create a very sort of loud and active anti-immigrant um, uh, politics. Um, this is not, uh, um, is um, that in that year of 2016, um, 161 people arrived by boat on Italian shores, but something like 140,000 younger Italians leave the country in search of their fortunes elsewhere. So you have these two processes happening at the same time where many younger Italians feel there's no, there are no jobs and there's no future for them in Italy and they're leaving on planes and um, desperate 
um, people from North Africa and Africa are reaching Italy by boat. So the sense for a lot of ordinary Italians, even though these things are not strictly related, is that things are going in the wrong direction. We're losing control of our country. We're losing control of our borders. And there's no future for our children. So you see then um, a very rapid uh, political change where, um, as I mentioned, uh, Renzi and his Democratic Party did exceptionally well in 2014, and that's the um, orange line on the left, gaining 41% in these European elections. The Lega and the Five Star together only managed a little under 20% in that same election. Just uh, four years later, you see a remarkable reversal of fortune, where the combined total of the Lega and the Five Star uh, movement uh, are now in a position in national elections to govern. Um, Salvini um, took his party from near dead after Balsi's collapse um, into being, in a quite short time, the largest single party in uh, Italy. You'll notice here um, a slogan that should be familiar to many Americans, um, and in fact was quite uh, consciously um, um, echoing uh, Trump's um, appeal to American um, nationalism. Um, there were lots of pictures early on in his career. Salvini was very much um, in the bossy camp of Northern separatism. You see him wearing as a young man, the t-shirt, Padania is not Italy. Um, and there he is with bossy. Um, but then you see him now wearing, it sort of was unthinkable for the Lega of Bossi to be wearing a Rome soccer jersey, um, let alone a Sicilian um, sweatshirt. Salvini successfully with a kind of new nationalist appeal broadened the, the Lega's electoral consensus and won uh, a surprising number of votes throughout the country. Um, he also did it by appealing to frustration with the European Union and to Euro sentiment. Italy has not done well for whatever reason since um, joining the European Union. And here he is with uh, Marine Le Pen of the Front National in France. Um, he was an early backer of Trump well before, interestingly, Berlusconi uh, did not back Trump. He backed Hillary Clinton. Um, Salvini instead um, back Trump and it worked for him. Uh, you also find again uh, the strange attraction between um, uh, certain parties and Putin. There's Salvini and Putin. Um, Salvini then did so well um, in these um, in the polls. He formed a government together with Five Star Movement after the 2018 election. The Five Star was the larger at that point of the two parties. But uh, Salvini very shrewdly um, assumed the uh, position of Minister of the Interior and stopped all uh, boats coming into the country. And that led to an enormous rise in the Lagos popularity. Um, he was leading in all of the polls and he decided somewhat incautiously to bring his own government down, thinking that it would lead to new elections and then he would be able to re-enter the government as prime minister with in a position of superiority vis-a-vis -vis the Five Star Movement. Instead, the Five Star Movement, <clears throat> um, there you see the, uh, the stopping of the um, illegal crossings in the EU. The Five Star Movement represents the, the yellow um, uh, color in the middle, actually had a larger share of uh, votes in parliament than um, did the Lega and aligned with the red people over here, which is the PD, to form this government that with Conte. Um, so um, now that you, um, when this new configuration of um, the Five Star Movement joining with the PD, in some ways was a kind of move of desperation because uh, particularly the Five Star Movement had really collapsed in the polls and was afraid if they went to elections, they would lose very badly to the Lega. So they allied themselves with the Democratic uh, Party and were struggling along in a somewhat unhappy marriage when the pandemic happened. 
the pandemic then has to some degree reshuffled uh, the political deck. Um, the, um, uh, the bar on your right, which is in the lighter blue, <clears throat> um, represents um, uh, polling numbers that were just taken uh, the other day. Um, these are not votes. The other, the other bars you see are actual vote totals from um, different years in which elections were held. Um, and, uh, but you see that the, um, at least the short-term effect of the coronavirus crisis has been to slightly reduce the uh, standing of the Lega uh, slightly improved the standing of the PD and um, um, leave the five star movement in a in a sort of holding pattern um, so um, where i 'm going to conclude and i 'm now toward the end of the talk is that I think what is happening and will happen uh, for better or worse and possibly for worse <clears throat> now that the crisis, um, it's too early to say that the, that the crisis is ending, but Italy is planning on reopening at least some of its businesses in May, is that we're going to see the problems that existed in Italy before this crisis reemerge. And to some degree, they may emerge um, um, in much more critical condition. Um, the latest, uh, I was looking at the Italian papers this morning, the latest estimate is that Italy's GDP um, may drop by 15% just because of this crisis. Uh, that, of course, is massive. And in the graphic you have here, you see the regional nature of its unemployment problem and its economic problem with unemployment in the South being 20%, and this is before the crisis, um, under just about 5% in the North. Um, so um, already there are indications from uh, initial news reports that this crisis has been um, very hard on Southern Italy where people, you know, shopkeepers and lots of other people have been doing essentially without income the last uh, couple months. Um, the other thing that is not going away, even though illegal immigration has ground to a halt and they're not these boatloads of people, Italy is faced with a, a really huge demographic crisis, um, which is not going away. Um, I just checked the, uh, the website of Italy's uh, sort of statistics bureau and um, you see that 636,000 Italians died last year and fewer than 450 were born. Um, the population as a whole went down by 235,000. And that's even including the um, more than half a million um, Italians that uh, gained citizenship during the year. Um, so Italy has a, a serious demographic problem. Um, it produces, um, um, the average Italian woman has 1.3 children, which is obviously way short of replacement rate. So that many of the political problems, um, Salvini has um, um, staked a lot of his political career on ending foreign immigration. Uh, but as you saw from the map of Lombardy, um, there is a huge demand for foreign labor in the most productive northern parts of the country. Um, Italy can never um, afford its generous pension system uh, without the presence of uh, foreign labor. And so there are all sorts of really deep unresolved problems in Italy that unfortunately are only gonna be aggravated by the current crisis. Um, Italy, uh, before this all happened, had a public debt of 130% of GDP. I don't think anybody's even calculated what um, the public debt is going to be when um, all of the uh, aid that was uh, needed uh, to help people get through this crisis is um, added up. Um, but I think Italy is facing, um, after a kind of... Um, you know, sort of sunny rally around the flag moment is then going to have a very, very tough 
reawakening as um, the economy comes back to life. So um, that's the end of my portion of things. And, um, and Tim, I think um, you were going to um, go through the questions and we were gonna hear from people in the audience. Uh, yeah, thank you, Alexander. What a what a great uh, uh, just survey of of kind of where things have come through this whole uh, the different stages of the populist uh, movement. Really appreciate that that um, kind of framing of that. Um, we do have some questions coming in already, um, and again, I'll remind our our attendees. Uh, please uh, take a look through the chat function, which you should find most of you at the bottom of your uh, screen, and send any questions in that you might have. Um, first question, uh, just referring to, to your last uh, comments here about the uh, GDP decline. Question being, does the, doesn't the GDP decline favor La Liga from a political standpoint? Yes, it will. I mean, I think there's no question. Um, I think that the, this kind of bounce that Conte enjoyed during the crisis is not likely to last. I mean, I'm, my sense is that you can't really paper over um, deep underlying um, problems that the country is facing. Um, so I think you're right, or the questioner is right, that the Lega will very soon um, return as a huge force. I think that the, um, this kind of political shuffling that happened when he brought down the government um, was only going to be uh, a temporary situation. The, the bringing together of the center-left Democratic Party with the Five Star Movement, which has a very uh, sort of fuzzy, unclear ideology. It's a party that, to put it in American terms, is a little bit like um, its supporters would be a little bit like joining together some of Bernie Sanders supporters with some Trump supporters in a rather uneasy uh, mix. And there's the lack of clarity of that party was part of what helped Salvini uh, move to the fore because Salvini was extremely clear about what he wanted and was very um, able in pursuing his agenda. So I think that the current coalition is very fragile. The problems are the facing the country are huge. Eventually, as we know, the party in power ends up paying the price for um, the situation of the country. And I think that um, the, the economic problems are gonna make a return of the leg of very, very possible. Great. Um, so we've got a number of questions of people who are interested in, in the PowerPoint. So we will be posting the PowerPoint and mm -hmm. also a taped version of this program to our website. So we can, we can share with those who, who uh, might enjoy this Mm -hmm. as well. Um, question about some of the, the uh, industries that are attracting uh, immigrants in the northern part of, uh, of Italy. Aside from textiles, what are some of those uh, industries? Well, you know, they do um, a lot of things. Uh, they make furniture, um, they make machine parts. Um, uh, Italy, for example, there's a, a big auto industry. They make a lot of the ancillary um, uh, things to the auto industry. Um, they actually have a big, in central Italy, um, um, uh, they, they have a lot of factories that actually make tool making machines. Um, it's a very sophisticated, um, I mean, one thing that's important to grasp about Italy is that the center north of Italy is an enormously prosperous, enormously productive part of the world. If you were to separate the north of Italy from the rest of the country, you would have an area with a standard of living that's comparable to Germany, Switzerland, Holland, somewhere like that. Um, and they have businesses that would support uh, that kind of standard of living. Uh, and so the, the immigrants work uh, wherever, uh, wherever they're needed. They work in a lot of factories. Um, they're, they're very uh, present in construction. Um, then increasingly, not just in the north, but you find them uh, increasingly in, um, uh, like for example, almost all the, um, the fruit stands and vegetable stands around the country are now run by North Africans. Um, 
They, these are, are shops that will open, stay open for much longer hours than standard Italian shops will do. So if you want to get a, a bottle of um, milk or juice at 11 o'clock at night, that's who you're likely to find open, things like that. Uh, you mentioned the, the large number of immigrants becoming Italian citizens, and there are some question from some about what, how difficult is it for a non-Italian, a person of non-Italian uh, descent to be, become an Italian citizen? It's actually extremely, uh, it's extremely difficult, and that's one of the many um, open political questions for Italy. Um, the, for example, the Democratic Party um, was pushing a naturalization bill, which would allow, for example, people who are, uh, even people who are born in Italy and have done all of their schooling in Italy, they may be 18 years old and have never lived anywhere but Italy, are, if their parents are not citizens, they are not citizens. And they do not qualify for citizenship. So the, uh, the Democratic Party was pushing for a law known as Usoli, which is that essentially, as in this country, if you're born on this soil, you become an American citizen. So they were saying, if somebody had been born in this country and done their schooling in the country and not gotten in trouble with the law, um, they should become citizen. Interestingly, the Five Star Movement has kind of equivocated on the issue of immigration and they weren't prepared to back that law. So that's one of the many fissures that exist between the two parties that are precariously running the government at the moment. But um, and, it's hard to get citizenship. And, and for, for those immigrants who do become uh, citizens, are, uh, is integration a, a, a problem for them? Are they, are they uh, grouped up in uh, ethnic or national enclaves? Is there, um, are they learning Italian? Um, I think the um, integration is a problem. Italians are not used to, and I think this is a, a European-wide problem. The, the demographic numbers that I showed you on Italy are particularly acute, but um, they're not dissimilar from numbers in Spain, Germany. Um, uh, France is a little bit of an exception, but, um, uh, but basically, you know, Europe as a whole <clears throat> is, if it didn't have immigration, would lose like 40 million people over the next however many uh, years. And so if it wants to maintain its labor force at current levels and um, people paying into its pension system, they're going to have to accept people coming in from outside. They don't have the same history with immigration that we have. And it's very culturally difficult for them. The Italians have been used to um, being a culturally homogeneous society and they're not used to um, um, people that uh, don't look like them, um, don't start out speaking their language. Um, at the same time, Italians are pretty open and welcoming people in general, but I think they have a hard time. So you'll often, sometimes you'll walk into a smaller Italian town, you walk into a bar and you'll hear the, the, the guy running the bar complaining bitterly about the immigrants. And, um, and then some immigrant will walk into the bar and he'll greet him, oh, Mustafa, how are you? And you realize there's no connection between, for this person, that's a person that he knows, that he likes, and with whom he's on friendly terms. Um, and that can coexist with a general hostility to the phenomenon of immigration as a whole. Um, and, um, I think the thing that is hard for Italians is that they're used to immigrants occupying marginal positions of service in their society, filling in the jobs that Italians don't want to do, picking tomatoes in the South, uh, olives, uh, and so on, but not occupying positions of authority. Um, and that I think is something that um, um, they're having trouble getting uh, used to. What is happening though, is that as those people um, have been here for a while, immigration really started in the 1990s, it's really very recent for Italy. Um, there are a lot of children going to school. Those people are very integrated. They all speak Italian. Um, and so I suspect that um, um, there will be more integration 
the future because there sort of has to be. Um, there's some questions about um, Italy's relationship with Europe um, and kind of the Euroscepticism of a lot of the uh, political leaders uh, in Italy right now. Just this week, the, uh, the EU actually uh, extended what they called their heartfelt apology for their response or lack thereof to, uh, to the COVID crisis in Italy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that strengthens the anti-European sentiment? Where, where is, what's the momentum there with regard to the feeling? Well, it's Europe? interesting because um, um, one thing that's been an interesting development, I'm glad you raised this because I didn't actually mention it in my talk and it's important, is that one of the things that Italy has been pushing for in this crisis is um, help with what will be the enormous debt that this crisis will leave Italy with. And because Italian debt is already huge and confidence in Italy's ability to pay it back is sometimes shaky, um, in moments of crisis, the spread between, let's say, German debt, the interest rate for German debt versus Italian debt starts to grow in moments of crisis, leaving Italy with very, very high interest payments. And so, the Italians and some of the weaker countries in the EU have said, what we need to deal with this crisis is a euro bond, that we need to have debt that is guaranteed by all of the countries of the EU so that Italy or Greece or Spain is not left with um, impossible um, debt conditions. Curiously enough, there's a certain amount of resistance and you can imagine among some of the Northern European countries, uh, Germany and Holland, but in particular, but they've actually showed more willingness to consider this than at any other time. So this will be an interesting test of Europe because, you know, in a sense, one of the things uh, I think many people feel that Europe failed the crisis of the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis by failing to come together, coming together and offering relief to Greece at its most critical time or to Spain. Um, and um, this is another moment where you, you sort of have to say, if Europe means anything as a united something, and you're dealing with a crisis of this magnitude, what does it mean if it doesn't mean some degree of solidarity, some degree of mutual aid to help uh, countries uh, go through this? Because there is a very serious risk, and I think many people in Europe realize it, that if, um, anti-European sentiment grows if someone like Salvini, who is instinctively, temperamentally anti-EU, comes to power and the EU has not done its job in helping out countries like Italy, um, people may say, well, what do we need Europe for? And then the EU unravels. So I think there is an awareness of that and I think that has to be factored in as a, as a risk. So we have a number of people who are concerned about um, or interested in uh, Italy's rebounding, uh, particularly their tourist industry, um, and some questions specifically about which of the regions of Italy um, get the most uh, tourist dollars, and um, what are you, what are you, what are your thoughts on when uh, people might be uh, going back to Italy and some of those tourist industries becoming uh, active again? Well, I mean, I think, um, I mean, in terms of the, the first part of it, um, the Rome is probably the first destination for uh, tourism in Italy. Florence and Venice are um, quite behind. In some ways, if you're feeling adventurous, um, this is probably a very good time. I mean, not immediately, but in a couple of months when the warmer weather um, kicks in, it'll probably be a very safe time to travel. I mean, I think all of us are wondering, uh, I mean, I think it's just gonna be a fact of life that all of us will now be traveling with um, masks on, that airlines will be, uh, this could be a comfortable time to travel without those middle seats, um, that people are gonna be paying far more attention to hygienics and to, um, social distancing than we, we ever did before. And so you may have find very favorable conditions. I mean, obviously I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, advise this for people with 
pre-existing conditions or um, precarious health. But um, I think at some point, a lot of us will be making calculations like this and, and uh, at a certain point you'll, you'll have um, very willing people on the other end in very favorable conditions. So let's hope. Yep, we'll, we'll be looking forward to that. Um, question about some, some other political movements uh, that may exist in Italy. How about uh, youth movement or uh, climate or environmental activists? What, what's their presence in the Italian political scene? Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I, I didn't um, mention it for the sake of brevity, I, I already exceeded um, everyone's patience by having 95 slides in my PowerPoint. But um, one of the interesting political movements that emerged just in the last year was uh, a quite spontaneous political movement called the Sardines. And this was um, when it looked like um, Salvini's Lega was going to be triumphing everywhere. There were a series of administrative and local elections in Italy earlier um, um, uh, at the end of last year. And it looked like Salvini was going to win in a lot of traditional left-wing strongholds like Bologna. And so this movement kind of came out of nowhere called the Sardines, where they would literally pack central squares where Salvini was going to speak like sardines. So in other words, the opposite of social distancing, they were going to pack, you know, 5,000 people into a town square and all hold a rally. Something like that is obviously history. I mean, I don't know when we'll see that type of, um, so their particular repertoire of um, protest um, was almost uniquely unsuited to a pandemic environment. So whether we will see any sardines or whether they're gonna be, you know, but of course people are endlessly creative in coming up with things. So we'll, we'll probably have this thing where you'll have sardines that are all, you know, six feet apart in squares and doing who knows what. Um, I think one of the things that's, um, what was interesting about the sardine uh, movement is that um, it filled a void where there hadn't been an effective youth boom. And the five-star movement was very big. In a way, as I said, it, it sort of channeled some of the kind of Bernie Sanders type energy. Um, um, I mean, unfortunately, um, Beppe Grillo is a hard figure to hang a whole political party around because he's um, kind of wacky. I mean, he's not crazy, but he sort of combines a sort of anti-vax um, loopiness together with a lot of populist anger together with environmental stuff, all in a kind of strange blend. Um, there isn't really a Green Party. And um, I think one of the things that has been a real um, deficiency on the part of the center left is an inability to excite younger people and um, to bring them into it. And the sardine movement was an interesting um, sort of bottom up type of movement that had a sort of center left um, orientation, but that was totally independent of the organized political parties. Well, Alexander, I think we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. It's been really so, um, so informative and, and, and your insightful um, analysis and, and the new information that, that you've shared are, are really helpful to us as we look and see what's going on uh, Italy right now and what's gonna be happening in, in the days to come. We have, um, obviously you've got a great deal of affection uh, that goes along with your, your vast knowledge of Italy. What are, and as we look for the next year, three years, five years for Italy, um, what do you what do you expect to see for Italy, and and what do you hope? What's your hope for Italy? My expectations and my hopes are rather far apart. I'm afraid. I as I said, I I look at the economic picture and the political picture, and I worry a great deal. Um, you know, my hope is that one thing that's very encouraging um, is. I'm still enormously impressed that with all the problems that Italy has, um, it produces exceptional people. 
Um, the younger people I see, the, the Italian university system is kind of a mess, but it actually still produces remarkably well-trained and well-educated people. I see them at the university where I teach uh, in New York. I see a lot of Italian students and they're well-prepared, uh, smart, ambitious, uh, capable. Um, what is discouraging is that they see more possibilities for their future in this country than in Italy, and that, that saddens me. Um, and um, so my hope is that um, um, they can begin creating a better future for younger Italians in Italy and that um, they figure out um, political formula and economic formula that makes that possible. Well, again, thank you so much, uh, uh, Alexander, for, for this program tonight. Um, and thank you to everyone for, uh, for joining us on this uh, first uh, foray into digital programming. Uh, we look forward to, to seeing you again uh, next month, May 20th, when we'll be joined by uh, Inter-American Dialogues uh, Director of Programs for Latin America and China, uh, Margaret Myers, for an uh, exploration of China's uh, relationship with Latin America. Again, thank you, Alexander, and uh, good night, everybody. Thank you, and thanks to everybody.